0: About you, that's the real question.
1: <laughs> uh we're doing good. I mean, I'm in physical therapy now, and it's uh been a little on the tough side, but uh we're getting there.
0: Well, that's good, definitely. Well, I don't know what they've told you about this interview, Blackie. We're doing this for um Charlie Kendall's metal shop. Um mm-hmm. and um they're gonna cut it up into pieces, so I'm not gonna do all the Hey, and here's another song and all that stuff. Right, so we're right, just, right, right, right. Which is kind of conversational a little, a, along here. But um, I did want to start, if it's okay with you, with your health. You know, obviously you said you're, you're doing better. But, you know, the thing that sticks out for me, just as a fan, is the level of puffing it out that you were willing to do when you were obviously in pain on this last tour. For you, where is that line between personal health and not letting your fans down
1: i could be wrong but the way i look at it when you say helped mm-hmm. to me help and is something that's different than injuries now i understand that it's the same and in, in a lot of ways but i i just look at it differently so mm-hmm. when somebody says help to me i'm thinking oh well you know how how's their their lungs and their their heart and all that? Th- that's not been my issue. My issue is injuries, and it it goes back really ten years ago when I broke my right femur, and it's been a domino effect ever since because I've had some phenomenal doctors, but mm-hmm. I've had a couple that didn't know what they were doing, and those you throw you know you can have ten great guys, but you throw a couple of bad ones into the mix. And It can really, really do some damage. So, you know that that's really where it is now. But as far as the way that I feel, and and my thought process of what goes on with that, you know, when you come from a sports background like I have, it's always like, you know, you let somebody beat on you with a brick bat, you know, and then you just you keep going. They tell coaches tell you get up, you get up. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's that's kind of the mentality. So. A little bit of it is the sports background. You know, some of it is also, okay, you don't want to disappoint the the fans that are coming because when you're playing places that are, you know, sizable, you've got people that are not just living there locally coming to the shows. You've got people traveling from great distances a lot of times. And, you know, we've all been in that situation where, you know, someone couldn't make a show for whatever reason. So for me, I'm looking at it for all the above reasons. It's like, you know, you it hurts a little bit, you know, just shut up, stuck it up and keep going. You know, that that's that mentality you, you go with. Now, if that's not enough, I've also got this thing that it's um it's a long word and I, I can't I can't even remember it, but I suffer from this thing where I don't feel pain exactly like everybody else. Okay. So it gets me in trouble sometimes. Because what the average person might be doubled over in pain with, I feel it and it hurts, Uh, but I can keep going. It sounds real macho, but it gets you in trouble a lot of times. And does more damage? Yes, because it's like, you know, if you put your hand in a fire and you're not feeling it, I mean, that's what pain is for. You know, so quite honestly, I don't know how much, because I I can never, I'm never going to be able to compare it to anybody else. I don't know how much of it is, you know, this, this thing that I have, I don't know how much of it is mental. You know, all I know is just the body that I've been in all my life. And it, again, a lot of it is that sports mentality. It's just, you know, shut up, suck it up and keep going, you know?
0: Right. Well, and you know, you, you obviously did as much as you could on this last tour and I know you've rescheduled some stuff for next year. Do you feel like, feel like the stuff that's rescheduled for next year is, is a definite or or too early to tell?
1: No, we're good to go on that. You know, I mean, I've been, you know, given the green light on that because the, the people that I'm working with now, basically it's the doctors from the U S Olympic team. Okay. And, uh, these guys are the best and, uh, it's pretty rigorous what they put you through, you know, but, uh, you know, what you get on the backside. I would rather do this now because we had long discussions about it before we did the surgery and going in to, to get everything tidied up once and for all so we'll never have to go back and look at it again. And they told me there was only one restriction they wanted to for me to lay off on, which was running on concrete. But other mm-hmm. than that, they told me, they said, we'll get you 20 years out of these parts. And I said, well, that works for me. <laughs> yeah, Perfect. <laughs>
0: It isn't getting old fun.
1: (laughs) Well, it's, you know what? I mean, again, I've been blessed with, with good genes and I hear people talk about it. The things I've, I've dealt with really aren't age related. True. You know, they're, they're injury related. And there's a difference because the orthopedic guy that's been my guy for the last 30 years, I go in at the end of every tour and I'm not joking. I go in his office at the end of every tour. And I crawl up literally on his table and I say, fix me. And he waves his magic wand over me and he's, he's been doing that for 30 years. So I don't see any difference now between what's going on now and what went on then. This has just been a series of more violent injuries, right? you know, so that that anybody at any age would respond to. But I would say this, I did learn a lesson about what this was like because Until you've suffered, I've heard of what's called nerve pain. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all heard of it. But until you've experienced it, you have no concept of what it's about. Because what happens is the spinal cord starts to get strangled or it gets infected. And that starts to leach out into your body. And there are no words to describe what that feels like. And there's, there's really almost no amount of medication they can give you to stop it it's uh it's pretty miserable, and yeah. the the trick is to try to get a, try to get a hold of it. and my spinal cord, because of what had happened, again, this was a domino effect from breaking the femur, um, what happened is the spinal cord became over a period of time strangled in three places, and what that's doing is it's cutting off the signal to the muscles and all that stuff so. We went in. There's a guy here in Southern California. His name is Dr. Dr. Robert Watkins, and he's the foremost back specialist in the United States. And I mean, every major league sports team uses him. You go in his office. I mean, jerseys all over the walls of guys' careers he's saved. Wow. And you know, he looked at it and he says, "Well, he says to be honest with you, he says for me, this is a fairly pedestrian operation." He says, "We'll have you up and running in no time." And he went in and he did his thing and I was in recovery and he came in and he says, you're good to go. And I thought, well, he makes it look so easy, you know, but, uh, like I said, if you, you know, if you want the best results, you got to go to the best. That's right. Just, it's that simple.
0: Right. Definitely. Well, speaking of the best, um, different, um, this is my transition here. Speaking of the best, we're, we're going to change topics to the best box set of 2023. I'm going to argue the seven savage, Talk a little bit about this box set and how much input you had directly, like hands-on input into it, and um, what people can expect if they buy it.
1: Well, I worked pretty closely with the label over it because, I mean, those first seven, with any band, and I don't care who it is, whether it's us or just about any band you can name, that band makes its bones the first five years they're together. True. And almost every band fits that description. I mean, the great albums that you think of with any band come in that first five years. That's not to say that they don't do great work later on down the line. But those first five years usually is what cements them in people's heads and hearts. And so, and we're no different. You know, we fit into that same mold with everybody else. So these these first seven records really come from those first five, six years. And uh, so, like I said, I worked pretty closely with the label because I wanted to make sure that it was represented correctly because that is your legacy. And again, it's not just us. It's anybody that uh, fit that description. Right. right. You, you know what, though, Black,
0: and this is just my own opinion, but I would argue in your career that you've created as good or better records in the 2000s era. And, and I'll take that to the bank any day of the week, that that those records are as good or better, but they're more thoughtful, obviously.
1: They're, well, they're more mature. That's right. the thing. You know, I mean, because when we were doing, and I've told this story a million times, but it always bears repeating. When we were doing our first album. Uh, I came in the studio one day and the engineer who was in there, he was one of those guys. He always had some crap going on. He was really funny. You know, it was great to be around. And I came in, it was a Sunday afternoon, and it was about one o'clock, and I was the first one there. Well, he was there also, but I was the first one from the band. And he was just not himself, the engineer. And after about 30 minutes, I said, Hey man, what gives? You know, I says, You're not you. Was there something wrong? He says, I got a phone call earlier this morning. Marvin Gay was murdered last night. Hmm and i didn't know but he had done a couple of records with marvin gay okay. and i could tell he just needed to vent so we sat on we we talked for over an hour and the one thing that i came out of that conversation with he says you know he says when i was working with marvin he says the one thing i learned from him he says you don't make records that reflect what you think is going on in the charts or what you think is hip at the time you make records that reflect who you are at that moment. And man, it was like somebody took a branding iron and branded that into my forehead. And I never forgot it because he's absolutely right. Because if you're, going to, if you're going to have a real career, and again, this is for any artist. If you're going to have a real career that goes, you know, 15, 20, 30 years or more, what you're, you're endeavoring to do is to take that audience on a lifelong ride. And the only way that you can do that with that audience is if they feel they're intimate with you. And the only way they're gonna feel that they're intimate with you, you've gotta let them inside your head. You, got, you gotta crack your skull open and let them come around, walk around barefooted inside your head right. to see what's there, the good, the bad, you know, the things that people don't wanna talk about. You know, you gotta let them walk around and see everything. And the only way you can do that is with the lyrics. You know, and that's how you talk to them. That's how you communicate with your audience. And if you don't do that, you're never going to take them on that lifelong ride. Because over a period of time, you start out like every other band, and, you know, it's the angst, it's the hostility, it's, uh, you know, I want to beat somebody, all of that stuff. But as you move on in your life and in your career, those priorities start to change. You know, by the time you get to your third record, fourth record, you've been around the world a half a dozen times. You've met most everybody you wanted to meet. You just changed. You know, you've become more sophisticated uh, and there's a level of maturity that goes with that. When I say maturity, I'm not talking about age. Right. You know, I'm just talking about world experiences. You know, so that goes along. It goes a long way into developing who you are as a person. And so if you're going to make records that reflect who you are, that's really the key. Because, you know, you wake up and you say, all right, what's moving me? What am I motivated by? Because I'm pretty average when it comes to that. You know, I, 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 like, I have the same taste basically as most of other, other people. You know, yeah, I'm an artist, but I don't think really like, you know, some av- avant-garde artist. You know, I, I'm just real average. You know, I like the same movies and same music and same food as most everybody else. So if I see something that moves me one way or the other, whether it's good, bad, if it motivates me enough to write about it, there's probably a lot of people out there that are going to be able to identify with that too. Sure. And so what we're doing is we're really, it's, it's conversational. I mean, we're, we're speaking to each other and it's funny because you know we just did we did the american tour last year it was the first time we had ever done meet and greets right and i have had it happen over the course of my career where people would come up and start talking and they always talk from a perspective that like they know you right you're always at a disadvantage because you don't know them but they know a lot about you because what you've written and doing the meet and greets was like, it was that on steroids. You know, and I heard it day after day after day. And it's, uh, it shouldn't be surprising and it shouldn't be perplexing, but it is. You know, because I'm hearing it back now in in healthy doses on a daily basis. You know, and they know me because of what I've written. And I've tried to be truthful, you know, and if you're, do- if you're and really all writers, if you're a real writer, you write from the perspective of truth. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, then you're writing from some place that you don't know what you're talking about. But if you write from that perspective of truth, people are going to be able to identify with it because they're going to be going through the same things you're going through.
0: Sure. Was was there a point, a specific point, I mean, where you decided that you wanted to write much more real-world-based and much less... You know, shocky for lack of a better term, because you know, obviously, and you know this—the the first two records, you know, the Ball Crushers and Animal and all that stuff—it's all shock. And then you all of a sudden came back with Headless Children, and it was like, wow, this is like a super deep, thoughtful, meaningful record. And and that's sort of the path you followed pretty much for the rest of your career was there something specific that led you that that way or did you just
1: well you just hit the nail right on the head it was headless that was the big change right because it was a series of events it wasn't any one thing that happened but you know i said a moment ago that you know by the time you're you're on your third or fourth record you know you've been around the world a bunch of times and you you've done all these things you've experienced all these things and it changes you Mm mm-hmm And, you know, you have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to. I remember we did our first record. There's a song on it called B.A.D. Right. And this girl comes up to me, and she says, I want to thank you. You saved my life. And I said, excuse me. And she goes, yeah, that song, B.A.D., that saved my life. And I said, okay. And it's like I'm standing there waiting for, like, more more, you know. And (laughs) she goes, she says, well, I was a really bad junkie. I had a really horrible heroin habit said so I listened to that song that made me understand what I was doing with my life. And she says, I've been clean ever since. And I want to thank you for that. She walks away and that terrified me wow. because what she was saying to me was the very thing that I was trying to escape from, which was what I refer to as the R word responsibility, right? Because here I, you know, I'm up here singing songs about my girlfriend's red high yellow shoes and I'm trying to escape it all. And this person comes up and and now B.A.D. has got nothing to do with heroin or drug addiction or anything, you know, but it was the way she interpreted the lyrics. Now, I've always written lyrics with a, a large dose of ambiguity, you know, where it gives the reader or the listener the ability to insert their own ideas and i think that that's important for any writer to do that because you know if i write from a perspective where it's telling you the story the setup the punchline everything it gives you no place to insert your own ideas right you know it's almost like old time radio versus television or movies with old radio your imagination gets to work with television and movies it's cut off a lot you know, because the visual supersedes and no matter how m- hard we fight against it, you know, we listen with our eyes and not our ears. All of us do that. You know, so like I said, she's telling me all this and I'm, I'm trying to escape it. But things like that kept happening over the course of the next two or three years. And as hard as I'm, or as fast as I'm trying to run away from it, ab- after a while, I just couldn't. And so you sit down and you think to yourself, who am I? Because when you've been on tour for four years, and it you know it's record and a tour and a record and a tour and a record and a tour, you don't know who you are anymore. And uh, you know the label tells you, well, you got to make a record and you got to get it back out there really quick because if you don't, you know they're going to forget about you and da 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 da. Well, you learn quickly. The only thing that's going to happen is that if you keep making bad records, they will forget about you. So we took about a year to do headless and in that time i sat down i removed myself from music you know i moved out of la and i you know i got a ranch and i just i just sit and you know thought about who i am and that was really where the change came and because when i discovered getting away from touring because that's such an institutionalized thing because Every day you have someone to tell you where to go, where to be, you know, what time to be on stage, when to eat, when to go to bed. You know, it's, like I said, it's very institutionalized. And when I got home, I took six months and I didn't do any of that. And who I I discovered I was over that period of time was pretty revealing. And I had changed and I had grown and I didn't even know it. Hmm. And so the things that I started to look at subject matter wise, when it came to write, I thought, I can't do that anymore, you know. I know the, you know the the audience, and I understand it because I'm the same way to a large degree. But if you're going to go, if you want a Big Mac, you know what that Big Mac is going to taste like before you ever get there. Right. You don't want to show up hoping for the Big Mac and it tastes like something altogether different. Right. Well, what I was doing at that point was I was saying to everyone listen, I know you like our version of the Big Mac, but I can't cook it anymore. You know, it's not who I am anymore. And I'm hearing Marvin's words in my ears. Make the records that reflect who you are at that moment in your life. And so, and I think, you know, you see that with most artists, you know, because not only are they changing and they're growing, but their artists is, gr- I mean, their, their audience is growing as well. So you get to go on that lifelong ride together and that's pretty cool.
0: Sure. Do you regret at all trying to go back with Heldorado?
1: Dorado? No, because that was a direct reflection of KFD. Okay. KFD was such a dark record. Sure. Because Chris and I were both in a really dark place. You know, he had gone, he, Lita had divorced him and, um, I was with a girl that I'd been with for three years and we split and him and I both were just an accident looking for a place to happen. And that record was that accident. Okay. And when it was done, you know, I, I had exercised those demons in me. And when it was over, it was like one day the sun just came out, you know, and it's like, Hmm, you know, I don't want to do that. What I I just did, I want to do something else now and hell uh, dorado was that
0: okay yeah i, I mean cuz i am sure you know that criticism of you did a bunch of deeper records and obviously crimson idol is in there which is you know considered a masterpiece by so many of us and then you went back the other way with you know dirty balls and stuff like that it's like whoo,
1: what happened you okay <laughs> but it just goes to show there is a wicked sense of humor in most writers sure and you maybe don't ever lose the core You right, right. and that was me revisiting that core. You and it wasn't like I was trying to do anything to capture the past. It's funny, you know, we're talking about this right now because we're working on a record right now. And if you would have asked me a year ago what that record was going to be, I would have told you it would have been more along the lines of El Dorado or our first record, okay? But ironically. That's not what's coming out. And as hard as I've tried to steer it in that direction that I felt that I personally wanted to go in, that's not what's coming out. You know, so it's like, hmm. You know, we we know as songwriters, when you work on a song for a period of time, you have to be smart enough to get out of the way and let it tell you where it wants to go. Because, yes, you you can continue to force it. And steer it in directions it doesn't want to go. But then you'll end up losing the beauty of the simplicity. And you end up with a watered-down version of your original idea. Right. So you learn to get out of the way and let those songs go where they want to go. And that's kind of what's happening now. It's not finished. you know. So there may be some more morphing that goes on during the process. Probably will be. But uh, so far, that's where, where it's going.
0: Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear that.
1: Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's um let's go to a topic
0: that you are well known for being a part of, but has all of a sudden become a super big thing again here in 2023. Let's talk censorship. Obviously, you know, the PMRC thing that is, you know, 1A when people when people mention you or WASP, they talk about the PMRC and mm-hmm. and you were very vocal about it. Before we get into where we're at today, when you look back at that time, do you see anything at all? Anything that uh, the other side was trying to do that actually worked. Meaning, meaning, you know, they put the stickers on and it did nothing but drive kids like me to buy everything that had sticker on it. You know, they they tried to make you say less stuff, and obviously you guys once you had the sticker, it opened the floodgate for to say more. You know, more stuff that the elite people considered bad. So, do you think that in any way, shape, or form, what they were trying to push you to took hold at all? No. Okay.
1: Because it didn't come from a place of the sincerity. They tried to, you know, it's the old Charlie Manton line get them with uh, sincerity. It gets them every time. You know, so in other words, it's that temp mentality of how to get in and manipulate people's thoughts. You know, and and try to get them in with what you're telling them is a good idea. But ultimately, their motivation was what found them out. And when it first started, we were too young to really understand what it was all about. But they quickly put us in the eye of the hurricane. And then all kinds of bad things started happening to us, death threats and get shot at and all of that. You know, it, it became we became educated very very quickly and i was in i think i was in indiana i think it was indiana indianapolis this girl came in to interview me this was like 87 86 yeah 87 and she had worked for the pmrc at one point and she was at this time i was talking to her was a journalist Mm -hmm. and she goes she brought in a cassette tape she goes i got something i need you to hear she played this cassette tape for me, and on it were Susan Baker and a few of the others talking about what their real motivation was. And their motivation was not to get stickers on records. Their motivation was to get Al Gore a platform to then run for president of the United States. So they were trying to create you know, a political profile for him. to Because what better way to get attention? if you're a political candidate of you know a, a southern caricature which is what he was what better way to get attention than to go after an attention getter i mean this is mccarthyism you know it's no different uh, richard nixon did it all these witch, witch hunts that went on in, in dc for years you know they it's the same you know wolf in the sheepskin's clothing you know we see it over and over and over but they come to a, a generation who's not heard it. So this thing comes around once every 15 years. Right. The generation hasn't heard it. They haven't heard the same old lies that come out of it. So it sounds pretty good to them because it sounds sincere and genuine. But the motivations right. behind it have nothing to do with that. We're in the same pattern right now as we speak. The organizations that are telling you, that whether it's wokeism whatever it is the crap coming out of the the colleges today you know that try to limit speech let me tell you something about free speech i Mm -hmm. don't care what you say sure you know i'm part jewish i'm part native american indian you can stand on a soapbox and you can talk about you know the how wonderful nazism is and how you'd like to excuse me and how you'd like to kill all the indians out there i don't care (laughs) right well let me let me rephrase that i do care but i don't want to limit your ability to speak Mm -hmm. because if i do that then we start going down a dark road because you start playing umpire and then who plays umpire tomorrow you have this country was built as a republic and a republic contrary to what a lot of people don't understand is not a democracy but what you have to do to create a republic you have to have a certain amount of faith in the people so in other words if you have a guy that's spewing a bunch of hatred on a street corner on a soapbox you have to have faith in your fellow americans that this guy is a lunatic And the vast majority of people are going to find them out and not follow them. Right. But what happens is when you start limiting that speech, then, like I said, you start, you take away the ability of the people to decide for themselves, number one, who's crazy and who isn't. But even more dangerous than that, you start appointing these umpires that tell you what you can and cannot say. And it's extremely dangerous. And you've heard it a million times, but it bears repeating, you know. Our system is not set up for popular speech. It's set up for unpopular speech. Right, right.
0: No, you're right. And, so, and, and the, the the scariest thing about it, one of the scariest things, there's a million scary things about it. And I'm with you. I Say whatever you want. I don't care. But what scares me the most is when I look at it now, What what are the people with the most radical thoughts doing? By being pushed out and you know being losing jobs and losing banking and everything else that's starting to happen with this, they're just going underground. And and look, I'd rather know that that guy hates me than wonder. You know, you know what I mean.
1: You know, I'm thinking of a situation. I was talking about a guy standing on the street corner, you know, spewing Nazism. You know, prior, just prior to America getting involved in the Second World War, there were Nazi rallies being held in Madison Square Garden. And that place is full. And you say, how could that happen? You know, and if you don't, if people listen to this, don't believe me, go on YouTube. You'll see it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these people were, I mean, you know, they're touting how wonderful, you know, that their system is going to be under a dictator. Well, they didn't call it a dictator then, but, you know, you know, this thing in the praises of Nazism. And you say, well, how could that have happened just prior to the Second World War? Believe me, folks, it did but the difference was, the vast majority of Americans were smart enough to see through it. You have to believe that the people around you have a little bit of intelligence, because if not, you know, the old thing—if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Right. You know, well, that's what this is, and it's just a big, giant version of that now. Yeah, it,
0: it, it is. I—I'll tell you, the more you know, on some of my shows that I do, we talk about it all the time. About every day, there's something. Every single day, there's something that you'll see on news, on some semblance of news, that just makes you think, what world am I living in? Because it doesn't seem like anything that could possibly happen in the reality that we all grew up in.
1: You are 100% correct, sir.
0: It's just scary. But All right, let's move off of that because now it's getting ugly. But (laughs) let's let's go to a happier topic. Um, One of the things that uh, Charlie does on his show is he has a – he has a segment called Star's Choice, where he asks the artist to pick their favorite song from their catalog and tell us what makes it a favorite for you.
1: Ooh, you're asking me to pick my favorite kid. You know? <laughs> It's
0: only 150 to choose from, right?
1: Yeah, right. Ooh. So do we really have to do this? I mean, it's like, wow.
0: But do you have one that you like to play more than others
1: or... Yeah, but it's going to be transient because it's what we were doing at the moment. So to, to say that it's a true representation of the thing that I like the most, it would be difficult. I mean, I'd have to give you two answers. It's okay. the only way I could, I could limit it because we on this last tour, we were doing the flame from the first huh. album. We had not played that song since the very first tour we did. So we hadn't played that song in thirty seven years thirty eight years or whatever, and it was really fun to play it again. I mean that song kicked fast, and I forgot how good it really was, but overall, if you had to ask me to narrow it down for live, I would say the great misconceptions of me because with the orchestration that that song has there are, there are moments in the the song where I don't sing, and I'm able to kind of just step back and listen to that orchestration and i'm here to tell you uh, there's a part where i'm not singing and i get off the microphone and i move i get as close to the front of the stage as i can so i can hear what's coming out of the pa and to hear it's a magnificent monstrosity that comes out and it's like like i said for me it, it makes the skin or make the hair stand on the back of my neck You know, every night we do it. So for me, that would be certainly the most fun to play live.
0: Sure. Well, the correct answer would have been The Last Redemption, but that's just my opinion. (laughs) Could be. (laughs) Such a great wreck. What do you think? I'm just curious on that one. I love the Neon Gods 1 and 2, and everybody, every single person I've ever tried to play them for says that, well, it's not the Crimson Idol. I get that response every time. And it's like, it's not supposed to be the Crimson Idol. It's supposed to be different. When you look back at it, how do you see it? Do you see it? Do you have like that comparative thing yourself, or do you just see it as?
1: The biggest um, disappointment I have with it is the mix. The mix is not as good as it could be because, and it's a long, complicated story, but the engineers that I wanted to use weren't available. And so you you end up going with with what you have at the time. Uh, But I think if the mixes would have been better it would have been received better, but I agree with you. There's moments on those records. They're pretty good. And they're certainly as good as, uh, as anything we've ever done.
0: Sure. And, 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 and I know I'm swinging back to what we were saying before about the 2000s era of, of wasp, there's a lot of those moments, you know, songs like Wicked Heart and stuff like that. Those are brilliant. Or Miss You, you know, and that's fairly recent. Miss You is a, a more recent song. It's And it's fantastic. As good as anything you've ever done.
1: Well, Miss You was one of the first songs that was supposed to have been recorded for the Crimson Idol. Okay. You know, so there's a reason it, it has a little bit of that feel to it. Because it was mostly, the majority of it was written at that time. But we were... You know, Capitol Records or EMI, rec- rather, uh, and their infinite wisdom was putting pressure on me to get that record finished, and I was just running out of time. And so, what I did is I, I looked at, I cobbled together enough songs to make sense out of the story because <laughs> I, had to, I had to really pay honor to the story. And I couldn't just throw, you know, a bunch of things out there that didn't make sense. So, Miss You, because it was not finished was not life and death that it'd be on the record. Uh, It bothered me that it wasn't, but, uh, you know, it just, you know, if I had to say the one thing about the Crimson Idol, I think part of the reason it did what it did and had the effect that it did on people was there's this simplistic beauty to it. It's about, it's a story about a boy looking for love and he doesn't find it. Now, if you want to dig through the layers, it's enormously complicated. Mm -hmm. But if you just want to look at it on a surface level, it's very simple. And so, for that, those reasons, like like I said, if you want to get into the complex nature of it, you can if you you so choose. I mean, there's all kinds of riddles written in the lyrics and things like that, and I did it purposely, if for those who want to get into the complexity of it. But if you want to look at you know on the surface. You can do that, too. So, again, it's written in multiple layers. So, whichever layer you'd like to go to or whatever mood you're in, you know, it's, it's there to have. You know, and I, I think from the listener's point of view, you know, I, th- I keep talking about the beauty of that simplicity. I think it should be like that because m- a lot of people, I would say probably most, don't want to get into the how complicated something is. You know, if they have to think about it too much. You know it strips away that beauty of that simplicity and that's okay you know because like i said if they want to view it on that level then fine it, it works you know the trick was as a writer does it work on all the different layers you want it to like the old decoder ring you used to get in the box of cracker jacks you look at it one way and you see one thing tilted a little bit different you see something totally different and that's what i was trying to do with that record sure
0: well, it's, it's, it's obviously a, a classic. And do you, do you look at it the same? I, I know, you know, what fans think about it. There's so many fans that, that say it's the, the greatest concept record ever. They put it a B with, with operation mind crime. Do you, is it even fair for you to do that? Since you're way too close to it to objectively evaluate it.
1: It took a long time. Okay. Um, when when the record first came out in '92, there was there used to be a magazine over in the UK. It was called Rock World, and it was like their version of Rolling Stone. And they did what was their list of the top twenty conceptual records of all time. Sergeant Pepper was number one. Uh, I think The Wall was like number three. You know, and they went on down the list. Uh, Crimson Idol was nineteen. Mind Crime was twenty. Okay. And I don't care where you are on that list. Just to be on that list, you know, was a big deal. But at the time, honestly, I thought Crime was a better record. Okay. Over the years, I've learned, uh, because I've been able to get away from it somewhat now, I see it differently than I w- than I did. I don't see Crime as a better record now. I just see it as different. Right. You know, they're both... You know, you know, pick your whichever one, you know, it's a a coin toss, I think. But they're just two different ideas coming from two different places. And I think they're both equally good.
0: No argument here. I own them both. So, (laughs) you know, simple well, well, Blackie, this has been fun, man. What am I missing that you want fans to know? You know, as as you get more healthy and get back on the road and get us, I'm a new record? I'm
1: walking, and that's a bonus. <laughs> so I'm happy. You know,
0: very good, man.
1: No, it's just you know, hey, you know, like I said, I've been I, my my dad passed away a few years ago. He was 92, and I have his same constitution. You know, you can beat on us with bats, and we just keep coming, you know. And it's like, so I'm just really blessed to have this constitution. You know, my what I was talking about, the idea of health, I don't see injuries as health-related. They're different animals, you know, and injuries are usually what you choose to do to yourself, you mm-hmm. know. And um, he was like that, and, I've, again, I I've followed suit, and um, but he, you know, he was like the Energizer Bunny, man. He just kept coming, you know, and, Sun doesn't fall, you know, that apple don't fall far from the tree.
0: Right. <laughs> Definitely. All right, sir. Real quick, before I let you go, they asked me to get one ID from you and it's kind of okay. long. So, um, it's just, Hey, it's Blackie from Wasp and you're listening to Charlie Kendall's metal shop. The only show with teeth.
1: You ready? Yep. Hi, this is Blackie Lawless from Wasp and you're listening to Charlie Kendall's metal shop. The only show with teeth.
0: Look at this guy. You are a pro, sir.
1: <laughs> I've done a couple.
0: I guess so. It's probably a million at this point. but <laughs> Well, dude, it's always great to
1: catch up well, thanks, with you. Thanks, Chris. I sure appreciate you taking the time, buddy.
0: And obviously, when the tour comes back around, or the, the album, or both, we'll do this again.
1: All right. I'll be ready. All right, Blackie. All right. Take care now. All right. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.